This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Presentation this morning is entitled Swaying the Future. Swaying the Future. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for life, health, strength, for seeing us through the day and the night and waking us up this morning. Bless us, Lord, as we are here, as we spend this time here in this workshop, as we meditate upon these thoughts. We pray your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and inspire us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Swaying, (coughs) excuse me, the future. Um, The title, does anyone recognize the title or where I may have gleaned the title from? Yeah. Now, I was just told actually in, in, in the hallway that Martin Luther King used this phrase frequently in some of his speeches. But he also was quoting it from the source that I'm quoting it from as well which the song that was just kind of uh, hummed there on the side is hymn number 606, Once to Every Man and Nation. The hymn was written actually originally in 1812 around the War of the, 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 the 1812 with America, I believe it was with Britain. And the hymn goes this way, Once to Every Man and Nation. It's profound words. It was actually the theme song, I think, to GYC last year or maybe the, the year before. Um, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, some great decision, offering each the bloom or blight, and that choice goes by forever, twixt the darkness and the light. Very profound words. The second verse goes, then to side with truth is noble when we share her wretched crust, ere her cause bring fame and profit, and tis prosperous to be just. Then it is the brave man chooses, while the coward stands aside, till the multitude make virtue of the faith they had denied. By the light of burning martyrs, Christ, your bleeding feet we track, toiling up new Calvaries ever with the cross that turns not back. New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient good uncouth. They must upward still and onward who would keep abreast of truth. And then the fourth verse, the fourth verse, though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold. Whose portion? The portion of truth. Though her or truth's portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong. And then the the third line says, yet that scaffold does what? It sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And that imagery, as the songwriter was writing, this imagery where he says, the portion of truth is all too often the scaffold. And when they say scaffold there, they're not talking about scaffold as we we think of today when you're you're building a house and you put the scaffolding up around the sides of of the structure in the middle. When they're using the term scaffold there, they're using it in the context, I believe, of an apparatus that would be used as people would be hung or something like that or burned. 
Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch over his own. And when you think back to the Reformation, you think back to the early church, you think back to the lives of people who went before us. And some of them, their names we don't know. This imagery kind of comes from the Colosseum in Rome. If you've been to Rome, anyone here been to Rome? Taken a tour of the Colosseum. The problem with getting a tour of the Colosseum today is you ask them certain questions. We assume basic history understanding, and they'll give you a revised version of history. For example, I was in the Colosseum and I said, hey, so did, you, did they kill Christians here in the Colosseum? Stand and answer, no, 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 we didn't kill Christians. I'm like, what history books are you reading, tour guide? And they just say, no, we didn't, Christians weren't killed here. They say, the poor people were killed and Christians were poor, so they died because they were poor, not because they were Christian. So they say, you know, some of these tour guides are trying to rewrite history. But be that as it may, then I got another tour from someone who wasn't paid by the Colosseum. And I said, is it true that they killed Christians in the Colosseum? And this tour guide was like, of course, they slaughtered them, you know, over centuries. Colosseum. Many, many Christians. And the thing is, we don't know the names of these Christians. Like there was one Roman emperor who, when he became emperor, he declared and decreed that there would be 180 days of games. Imagine like, you know, Donald Trump becomes president or your next American president becomes president. And they declare when they begin their presidency on whatever it is, the 5th of January or whenever they start their presidency, that they're going to have the first six months of the year is just going to be holiday. Games. And the games that they had obviously was killing, you know, you know, all types of stuff that would take place in these buildings. Now, when this, when these uh, things started, or when, you know, when it was taking place in the early Christian church, and the Christians were getting slaughtered, it's interesting when you look at Satan's strategy, with the early Christian church, you know, we look in Revelation chapter 1 and the church of Ephesus, not chapter 2 rather, the church of Ephesus, the church is pure, and then you have the church of Smyrna where the church is persecuted. And then after the church was persecuted, the church became compromised and then it became corrupt. Because Satan realized that there's that quotation from the book Great Controversy from Tertullian. Satan realized, as many people quoted, the blood of Christians was what? It was seed to the gospel. The more you kill us, the more we come up. But it's, almost, it's, it's kind of interesting when you think about this. The of Christians is what? Seed to the gospel. Satan knows this because he's tried to kill the church and as he tries to kill the church, what happens? They keep growing and they keep coming back. It's almost like you kill one and three more come in the place. And yet it's like the hatred and intensity of Satan against the Christian church is so great that even when he realizes this strategy is not working, he still goes along with the strategy just because he hates so much. The blood of Christians is seed to the gospels. Diogneto said, do you not see that the Christians thrown to the wild beasts, that they may recant the Lord, do not allow themselves to be beaten? Do you not see that the more they are punished, the more others what? Increase in numbers. When you think about the Christian church today, here in the American context, North America, when you think of the Adventist church, you trace back our roots to like the 1840s and 50s and so on. Largely speaking, the church in North America, same where I come from in, in Europe, largely speaking, is a unpersecuted church. Would that be fair to say? 
We really haven't experienced persecution. Yeah, you meet a church member whose boss gives them a little trouble about getting Friday evenings off when the sunset gets early. Or maybe Sabbath privileges. But it's not like real intense persecution. We may think it is, but that's kind of first world problems compared to what some Christians have gone through in the past and even the present. But largely we are kind of an unpersecuted church. And it makes me wonder how are we going to cope when persecution does come? But we can be inspired by the stories of the past to know what stands these men and women. The title, Swaying the Future. The lives that we live impacts the future. One of the kind of the inspirations, in a sense, behind Lineage when we put the video series together was to try and show the connection between the past, the present, and the future. That the past inspires our identity today, and our identity today inspires our mission for the future. If we know who we are today and we know where we've come from, it gives us a greater sense as to where we're going and what our purpose here is. And what has God put us here on this earth for? He's put us here on this earth to share the message. He's put us here on this earth to to spread the good news about Jesus and to be missionaries for him wherever he may call us to be. Whether that involves sacrifice of our comfort or maybe even our life. And some of the places we had the privilege to go to uh, with lineage, just want to sh- t- share with you some of the, the, the places or some of the stories. This was uh, a picture that was taken actually by Ashley at the back, who's taking pictures right now. Thank you, Ashley. Um, this picture was taken on the island of Iona. No, actually, the island of Mull, on the way to Iona. If you ever have the privilege to go to England, um, well, I should say pro- correctly, if you ever have the privilege to go to Scotland, um, and you have a few days spare, travel up, if you can, to Iona. It's a beautiful, like I was asked once by someone yesterday, where was the favorite place I went to on the filming of Lineage? And to me, I just said instinctively, I just love it there. And the reason why I like it, and everyone's different, depending on what you like to go and see on holiday or what you like to see on your time off. You know, some people like to see shops or restaurants, some people like to see whatever. I just like to go to a place where there's no one else there. Amen. And like, to me, just get away from life for a little bit and Iona is just kind of the epitome of that you, you, you travel three hours and you take a ferry you drive across an island you take another ferry and you get to this speck of rock on the coast where you're looking westwards and there's nothing like it's that's it America's next North America and you're there on this tiny little island and you, you're thinking what happened here on this island like 1500 years ago and how that island swayed the future How a missionary went from Ireland, his name was Columba, got on a boat with 30 people, sailed across the sea, landed on this this clump of rock off the coast of Scotland and said, I'm going to start a school. At the age of 30, he had already started about 300 churches in Ireland. So he was well qualified to be a pioneer missionary to Scotland. And in those days, this is kind of on the Isle of Mull. The ferry takes you there, you, and then you have to drive through that pass there. Um, he, had, he was well qualified to be a missionary at, at the age of 30. This picture here is taken in the bay, the very bay where Columba landed. He sailed in his boat, landed on the, the south side of the island. They call it Columba's Bay. It takes us about a mile and a half's walk there through a few farm fields, past the sheep and whatnot. And there you sit in the bay and you wonder, these guys landed here 1,500 years ago on a boat. Scotland in those days was a wild country. 
And when I say wild country, I mean a wild country. How, how wild was Scotland? There was a legion of the Roman army called, I think it's the 9th or the 11th legion, there was 5,000 Roman soldiers. Have you heard of Hadrian's Wall in England? It's kind of like a Roman version of the Great Wall of China, but it's pretty pitiful. It's just kind of like... It's the Hadrian's Wall that goes from one coast of Britain to the other coast of Britain. It was built by the Romans to keep the Scottish out. Because they're a little bit crazy back then. Like they were a war, warring people. One legion of the Roman army, that the 5th or 9th or 11th legion, 5,000 soldiers went north of this wall. You Google it, they'll tell you. They went north of the wall. Not one of those soldiers made it back. And no one knows where they went. But 5,000 crack troops from the Roman army disappear and gone. Like Scotland then was a wild country. When Columba went there, it was a pagan wild country. And he went there to be a missionary in a very, very hostile environment. And he picked this island of Iona, calm, peaceful island, and there they would train as missionaries and go out over Scotland, and then from Scotland to England, and then from England to Europe. We don't know exactly where all the missionaries went, but we know the impact of what they did. Scotland was changed in many, many ways. You know, the Celtic church in Britain made Britain a Sabbath-keeping country until about the 10th or 11th century, keeping the Sabbath. It wasn't until the Romans really came over that they kind of obliterated all of that. Um, the Catholic monks came to Iona in the 1200s and then it became a Catholic place. And the monastery that's there today is not really the original one. In fact, recently, about a year ago, they just found what they believe was Columbus' home. I'm not quite sure how they know it was his home. But um, anyway, this is Columbus Bay. Someone had made this really nice kind of cool thing with the, with the stones. Iona. A missionary from Iona went across to a place in England called um, the Holy Island. If you've seen some of the lineage episodes, you may have seen this one. And one of the missionaries went to a place in England called the Holy Island. He was a young man. His name was Aidan. And basing there in England, he was able to send missionaries there throughout England. So by the 6th century in England... England was essentially what you would say an apostolic faith country, having a religion that harked all the way back to the apostles, true religion. He had converted the country of England with his other missionaries that he would send out. You know, he lived a life that left a legacy. It's a beautiful little island you can go to there. It's, an, it's a, what's called a, um, a tidal island. So the tide comes in and blocks the road, and then the tide goes out and you can drive over and you better not go there. Um, in the wrong time. They've got a beautiful little castle there on the island that you can kind of view across the bay. And it's again another peaceful place. And it makes me think of the places where God chose to train his church in the past. The island of Iona, isolated off the coast of Scotland. The island of, it's called Holy Island, it's Lindisfarne. Holy Island off the coast of northeast England. Quiet, peaceful, beautiful place. Tide comes in, no one else can get there. You just got the place to yourself. And the missionaries that, that went there, that missionary fervor to go wherever the Lord called them as missionaries, not seeing their home country again. And they lived lives that influenced the future, that swayed the future, so to speak. Swayed the future. 
We've mentioned this guy a few times. His name is John Wycliffe. And there's, there's one part of his life that we haven't mentioned. John Wycliffe, Ellen White says, was one of the greatest of reformers in breadth of intellect and clearness of mind, thought, and firmness to maintain the truth, and in boldness to defend it. He was equal by few who came after him. And yesterday we talked about some of the reasons as to why he was so far ahead of his time. Not just translating the Bible, but his views on justification by faith, his views on church and state was basically 400 years ahead of his time and it wasn't until Roger Williams came along that someone else had the same idea and implemented what he wanted to have. He was far ahead of his time. He was truly the morning star of the Reformation. But unfortunately, he lived his, he lived his life. He died at the age, uh, well, I'm not quite sure, in 1384 he died and he was buried in the churchyard around... Um, around his church. No one knows where he was buried though. You can go to the churchyard today, you won't find his grave because unfortunately in 1415 at the Council of Constance, you may have read this where they settled the papal schism. They had three popes at that point, but they ended up with just one. They also killed Huss and Jerome. And it's also there where they condemned Wycliffe as a heretic and ordered that his bones be dug up and burnt. I mean, how much do you hate a guy to like, yeah, just dig him up and burn him. The Bishop of Lincoln at the time was a friend of Wycliffe, because this was only about you know, 30 years after he died. The Bishop of Lincoln knew Wycliffe when he was alive, and he refused to do it. And he was the bishop for eight more years, so the, the bones didn't get dug up for at least, well, eight more years that you had the same bishop. He said, no, I'm not doing it. I refuse to. Then the next bishop came along, and he initially refused to dig them up as well, but he was a, a weaker character. His backbone wasn't so strong. And a few years later, so probably by 1522 or, I mean, 1525 or so, the bones were dug up. They burned the bones and they were thrown into the nearby River Swift. I mean, river is quite a generous word to call it. Um, that's what it looks like today. It's more like a stream or as you might call here, a creek or something like that. Um, it's not very, not very big. We don't know exactly where they threw them, but this is the bridge that goes over into the town, so you can easily just kind of walk down here and, and, think, and see there. But the great thing about what they did, you may have read a quote from a certain author that says this, this book, says an old writer, has conveyed his ashes into the Avon, the Avon to the Severn, the Severn to the Narrow Seas, that would be what we'd call today the Bristol Channel, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed the world over. Swaying the future. Wycliffe didn't just live his life to serve his parishioners there in England, even though that's what he may, may, may have thought. But when he translated the Bible, as he lived his life, it just went much, much further than that. And symbolically in his death, like the water from that one stream went to another river, which goes to another river, which went to the channel to the ocean. Symbolically, the light that Wycliffe started, the morning star of the Reformation, it couldn't be put out. Huss and Jerome would come later, then Luke Calvin, then Knox and Wingley, and so on, and it could not stop. The Reformation, the Re Reformation would become unstoppable. There's another place in England that, if you ever get a chance to go to, it's this statue here. Not statue, this tower. If you're familiar with English geography, that strip of white there, there, that's the Bristol Channel. So the, the land on that side there is the country of Wales. And this is still England. And there's a motorway that goes there, or a freeway, like M5. Anyway, this is a little village here called North Nibley. This was the village where William Tyndale was born. And this 
big, huge monument on the hill is 30 meters high and was built to commemorate the birth and birthplace of William Tyndale. I mentioned him a few times yesterday. As I've said, he's my favorite at the moment, my favorite reformer. He was born there. No one knows too much about his early life. Don't know too much about his family. They really don't know too much. But we do know that he went to Oxford to study and possibly to Cambridge as well. There he distinguished himself and he wanted to go against this law of England, the Oxford Commission, that forbade the translation of the Bible. That, that conversation he had with a friend or, or a colleague of his, a Catholic friend, who said we would be better without God's laws than the Pope's. And the response he gave famous words where he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spare my life ere many days, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And this phrase, the boy that drives the plow, kind of inspired his translation of the Bible. And I mentioned yesterday in one of the presentations how his translation Extremely profound, but very simple. How he used a lot of monosyllables, words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Profound verse, every word just has one syllable. So he wrote the Bible in a way that the boy that drives the plow could read the Bible and understand it just as much as the educated academic intellectual. In him was the light, and the light was the life of men. Like his Bible is extremely profound, but very simple. Most of the King James Bible today, about 80% of the King James Bible comes from William Tyndale's Bible that he translated. And so he was very, very much ahead of his time, but he couldn't live his life in England. From 1524, he lived as a fugitive, almost like a modern day, excuse the analogy, James Bond. Not like he was James Bond, but you get the idea in the sense that James Bond, often in his movies, he's running away from people and they're trying to capture him and he runs away. They try and capture him, runs away, runs away, runs away. William Tyndale was on the continent. He went to this place, someone try and get him. He escapes to this place. He escapes to this place. He escapes to this place. And all the time he's living undercover. He's living undercover. Not sure who he can trust. Not sure who he can trust. He went to Hamburg and then from Hamburg he had to escape and managed to get away with just a few of his um, transcripts. He went to Worms. And there in Worms, it was a bit more peaceful because Luther was, you know, I mean, not Luther, but there was other people there. He was able to finish his translation of the New Testament. From then, from the time he left England in 1524, he finished the New Testament around 1525. As he finished the New Testament, there's an interesting story where the Bishop of London bought 6,000 copies of his Bible. Why would the Bishop of London buy 6,000 copies of his Bible? Because he didn't want his Bible to be in circulation. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to buy them all. So he bought 6,000 copies of the Bible at market price. Then he took them to St. Paul's Cathedral in 11th of February, 1526. There were 36 bishops, abbots, and friars there in attendance, and he did a big bonfire of the 6,000 Bibles. Now, William Tyndale, instead of being disheartened by this, he was actually quite encouraged. Why? Because, number one, he was able to get out of debt. And Alistair Huang would say Amen. <laughs> He enraged others who saw this, it enraged others who saw what was happening as a profligate waste of the Bible. Like, how can he do this? And that kind of piques their curiosity. But also what it enabled is a better quality version of the Bible could be printed. He got the money, cleared his debts, had a bit more money, and he could reinvest it into printing and print a better quality and more of them than he had before. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 says this, for we can do nothing against the truth, but what? 
but for it. This guy thought he was like pushing, you know, dampening the truth down by burning the Bibles on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral for a little bit of dramatic value. Tyndale's like, no problem, I'll reprint. I will go ahead and reprint. The last place that Tyndale lived was Antwerp, and he lived with a man called Thomas Points. He was a friend of his, he was a good man. And then he was befriended by a man there called Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips was a Judas-like character. Thomas Points warned William Tyndale not to trust this guy. Some people say that William Tyndale was a very, too trusting or very trusting. He trusted him. And unfortunately, he invited, Henry Phillips invited Tyndale round to his house for dinner. Judas character. He couldn't arrest him at the house he was staying at because it wasn't his property or bring the guards there. So he said, come to my house. Came to his house. And as they were leaving the house, Henry Phillips, trying to be the quintessential English gentleman, allowed William Tyndale to walk in front of him out the door, kind of like, no, no, you go first. So as William Tyndale walked out and went first, the two guards were standing like by the walls. As he came out, they just grabbed him and took him. They took him to Vilvord Castle, which was 18 miles away. And while he was there in, in Vilvord Castle, they attempted, thank you, they attempted a reconciliation between the king and Tyndale, and the royal court wanted Tyndale on their side. But despite the promises, he would not return to England unless the king sanctioned the Bible in the English language. That was what he had pledged his whole life to do. And he says, I will not go back home unless the king does that. The king did not do that. That's King Henry VIII. He refused to do that. And so William Tyndale, unfortunately, unfortunately, on, in 1536, he was strangled to death. His uh, statue in England right by the River Thames, has these two verses there. The last words of William Tyndale were, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Within a year afterwards, a Bible was placed in every parish church by the King's command. He lived a life that left a legacy. Yet that scaffold sways the future. What would it have been like for William Tyndale? Can you imagine what would go through his mind in Vilvord, Belgium, 42 years old, his parents probably still alive. You know, when children die before their parents, it's always a sad occasion. His parents probably still alive. His brothers and sisters, most likely, we assume he had some still alive. His cousins still alive. He has not seen them for 12 years. For 12 years, he's lived as a fugitive. He's lived on the run. He's lived out a suitcase, so to speak, on the run in Europe. He hasn't seen his home country, hasn't eaten his home food. Has to eat all that funny food in Germany and wherever else. No good old English fish and chips or whatever he used to like to eat. And so he's, he's, he's got all of these home comforts he hasn't had. Dies a lonely death. There was no people around him when he died. There was no crowd that was cheering. There was no people that were watching. It was a lonely death that he died, 12 years on the run there in Belgium, wondering, is my life worth it? Yet the song says that scaffold does what? Sways the future. But what does the next line say? Yet that scaffold sways the future. And what's the next line of the song say? And behind the dim what? Unknown. Standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. And the reality is that in life, sometimes the experiences that we go through, and some of us more than others, some of us more than others, 
The experiences that we go through, we can sometimes feel that while we're going through a scaffold experience, you're wondering where God is. And the song says, God's standing there, but sometimes he's in the shadows. And he's keeping watch over his own. As William Tyndale died, I believe it was somewhere near the spot where this monument in Belgium was, was erected, he probably wondered, was it worth it? And at that time of his life, it may have seemed like God was standing in the shadows, but God was standing in the shadows and keeping watch over his own. If you've had the privilege to travel to Italy, and if you ever get a chance, I'd say go there. And if you have the choice of whether you go to the Waldensian Valleys or you go to Rome, even though Rome is more prestigious, always first choice should be the Waldensian Valleys. It just doesn't compare. Rome is like gold, marble, and all hocus-pocus stories from the tour guides. And, and the Waldensian Valleys are just peace, serenity, quiet, and, and our heritage of integrity and courage and fortitude. And there in the Waldensian Valleys, there's a particular place, if you ever get a chance to go to, it takes a little bit of effort to get there, a place called Castelluzzo. Let me just read a few quotations about the Waldensians. It says, in great controversy, but of those who resisted the enroachments of the papal power, the Waldensians stood foremost in the very land where Popery had fixed its seat. There its falsehood and corruption were most steadfastly resisted. For, this, for centuries, the churches of Piedmont maintained their independence, but the time came at last when Rome insisted upon their submission. After ineffectual struggles against their tyranny, the leaders of these churches reluctantly acknowledged the supremacy of the power to which the whole world seemed to pay homage. There were some, however, who refused to yield to the authority of the Pope or the prelate. They were determined to maintain their allegiance to God and preserve the purity and simplicity of their faith. A separation now took place. Those who adhered to the ancient faith now withdrew, forsaking their native, but some, it says, forsaking their native Alps, raised the banner of truth in foreign lands. Others retreated secluded glens and rocky fastnesses of the mountains and there preserved their freedom to worship God. You know, it's kind of interesting when you look at Europe geographically speaking, geographically speaking, the Christians that maintained their faith the longest were the ones that geographically were placed in the biggest mountain areas. And I don't know, I think that has something to do with it. Just the reality of the Roman soldiers trying to capture and kill made it so much harder to do it there than anywhere else. And they were able to defend themselves there so much easier. And if you go to the Waldensian Valleys today, it's just beautiful to be up there in, 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 the, in the Alps, to look out about the mountains towering round, and to think that here in these mountains, God's people live for century after century after century. They maintain their faith faithfully, adhering to the word of God. Them, We're not quite sure exactly, but for a long time, for the majority of their history, they were also Sabbath keepers as well. And in the last several hundred years, they kind of lost the Sabbath. But in their early history, in the majority of their history, they were also Sabbath keepers. And up there in the mountains, I mean, today there's roads that get you there. Back then there would have been trails and tracks. It would have been a lot harder to get there and live. You know, today we think of going camping. We may go for a day or two or a weekend and we think, oh, that's hard time. That's struggle. That's, oh, well, you know. These guys lived in the mountains, in the bush, hiding in caves. Not just for an experience, their life. And then the next generation. 
then the next generation, and the next generation. I mean, they're beautiful. This is a picture taken in summer. If you go in winter, it's just snow-capped and snow, snow-covered all around. But there's a particular place, and it wasn't just, uh, you know, they would just, just live there. They would also live there as missionaries. Like the Celtic church sent missionaries out from Iona around England, the Waldensians were very active in sending missionaries out as well. Ellen about them. She says they would take their coats and they would undo the stitches of the coat, put the pages of the Bible in, go as a, a missionary student to the University of Prague or, you know, in England or, or, or Paris. And there they would go as studying medicine, studying law, studying engineering, but they would be there as a missionary to plant the truths of God's word. We don't know the names of these students. About half of them would never come home because they would die after they had been uncovered as being a Christian. But they were trained as missionaries. This is a school that stands in the Waldensian Valleys. It's called the College of the Barbs, which would have been translated the College of the Uncles. They called their pastors uncles, not father, because the Bible says, call no man father. And they would train the missionaries and send them out there. But beautiful. But it's one particular sad story. And the reason why, you know, I said at the beginning, the blood of Christians is what? See to the gospel. Satan knows that, so you kind of wonder, why do he keep killing them? If he knows that the more he kills, the more they come back. It just goes to show how much he hated them and how much he hates us. If the strategy you know doesn't work, you still keep doing that strategy. There's a particular, one of the worst episodes of Waldensian massacre happened in 1655. On April the 24th, which was incidentally a Sabbath, at 4 a.m. in the morning, they struck while people were in bed. They estimate that 2,000 people were killed. At 4 a.m., while people were still sleeping, they burst into homes, they grabbed people out of their beds, and they started a systematic killing of the Waldensians. That was pretty brutal. Little children were torn from the arms of their mothers and dashed against the rocks. Or more horrible still, they were held betwixt two soldiers who, unmoved by their piteous cries and the sight of their quivering limbs, tore them into two halves. Their bodies were then thrown on the highways and the fields. Sick persons and old men and women were burned alive in their own houses. Some were hacked to pieces, some were bound in the form of a ball and precipitated over the rocks or rolled down the mountains. Some were slowly dismembered and the fire applied to the wounds to staunch the bleeding and prolong their sufferings. Some were flayed, or that means skinned alive. Some roasted, others were disemboweled. Some were horribly and shamefully mutilate, mutilated. Some of them retreated to this mountain here and they hid in a cave. We don't know where that cave is today. I wish we could find it, but no one knows where it is. There was a cave along the side of the mountain called Castelluzzo. And a lot of them ran there, a couple of hundred or so ran and hid in this cave. The Roman soldiers pursued them there, smoked and or whatever, got them out of the cave, and then marched them to the top, to this spot here where, where, where we're standing here, and there's a little stack of rocks there. They marched them to this spot, and then they pushed them over the edge. Pushed them. And you lean over the edge, that so you shouldn't get too close. It's like a big drop. Now to the rocks below. And they pushed them over the edge, killing hundreds of them over that edge. If you get a chance to go there, 
hike up there. It's about a three-mile hike to the top, three-mile hike down. Very peaceful. There's no one else up there. But you just sit there and look over the edge and contemplate. What did these nameless people, that we don't know what their names are, they sacrificed their life just because they wanted to live by God's word. The song says, yet that scaffold does what? Sways the future. Their life, I believe, inspires people today. You read the chapter of the Wardensians in the Great Controversy, and you cannot help but be inspired. And even though it's a very sad, and even the quote I just read, kind of gruesome, it still has the power to inspire faithfulness in us today. That the lives we live can sway the future of whether it's just, even if it's our, our children or our family or it's the church we come, or it's the young people that come after us. The life we live can sway the future of somebody else. You know, sometimes people wonder why these bad things happen. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 28, you know, these, God is not the cause of these things. The Bible says it's the enemy that has done these things. Satan is the cause of these bad things that happen. Satan is the cause of this evil and this suffering. It is not God who is the cause of this. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We live in a world where we have the great controversy, and we see this played throughout history, and we'll also see this played out today as well. Another place we did some filming for Lineage, and it's also one of my favorite stories, one of my most favorite stories. It was in France. This was a particular hard episode to film. We were really against the clock, really, 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 really against the clock. We'd been up since three o'clock in the morning, climbed up Castelluzzo, filmed, came back down, did some filming in the valley, left at two o'clock, blasted, praise the Lord for fast French drivers, blasted all the way to France, seven hours. We got there about 25 minutes before sunset and managed to just squeeze it in before the light went. It was a really kind of tough, intense day. Clive was like, Adam, no mistakes. First take, first take, first take. Um, and the home, why we rushed to get there and why we tried to squeeze this in, it was a home of a lady called Marie Durand. It's one of the later episodes, if, you, if you've had a chance to see them. Marie Durand. Who was Marie Durand? She's not a famous reformer, really. There's no chapter written on her in Great Controversy. No one really knows this woman. And so you may wonder, well, why do we do a chapter on her? Why do we do an episode on Marie Durand, who's not that famous or not that well-known, maybe outside of French Huguenot circles? The reason we did it in many ways was we wanted to highlight the life of someone who was not famous. John Wycliffe, we know. Praise the Lord. Martin Luther, yeah, we know, John Calvin, and I'm not saying these guys, they're famous, and, and for good reason. But there was also countless other people in the Reformation who were not famous, who were not preachers, who were not theologians, who were not academics. But they still suffered and made stands for the truth that you and I believe and live by as well. She is one example of what many of us, many of us are, just Christians that no one else knows outside of a little circle. She lived in his house. She was the sister of Pierre Durand. He was a pastor, and that was her crime. You see, they would hold worship services in the secret. In France, they would call them the assemblies of the desert. And they held these worship services. Both her parents, 
excuse me, both of her parents were arrested and died in prison. So at the age of 17 or 18, I forget exactly what it was, she lost both her parents. Her brother was then taken to prison at about the age of 18 and sentenced to death. So now at the age of 18, she has lost her mother, her father, and her brother. She has no family left. So at the age of 19, she marries a man called Matthew Sear. Three months after she was married, he was arrested and sent to prison for 20 years. 19, lose your mom, your dad, your brother, and your husband of three months. She was then taken to prison to this building here. This is just outside the town of Montpellier in France, and this is called the Tour du Constance, the Tower of Constance. This building here has got two rooms. Well, you can stand on the roof there. There's two rooms, the floor's about there. There's a lower floor and an upper floor. And it's quite impressive architecturally, makes quite nice pictures, you know, very Instagrammable and all the rest. But Marie Durand was taken there because her brother and her family were all Protestants, so she was arrested. Her crime was simply she was from a Protestant family and her brother was a pastor. She was taken there and held in this room here. I mean, today, like I said, it looks very nice. Pictures look good. She was taken to this room. The food would come up through this hole in the ground. I guess their personal waste would go back down through the same hole. A little bit of air would come through a hole the same size in the ceiling. In the summer, it would be humid and hot. There's a reason why they take... Uh, Siestas down there. In the winter, it would be cold and snowy and rainy. And there she lived. This is the, the hole, and this is the edge of the hole. And there's a piece of glass here to protect what's written underneath. Written underneath, etched in the stone, R-E-G-I-S-T-E-R, -E -E which says register. Actually, Z, not R at the end. Register, which is the old French word for what the modern French word today is, resister, which is the English word, resist. She was there locked up in this prison from the age of 19. From the age of 19 until the age of 57. And if you're not a great mathematician like me, that's 38 years. Almost four decades. In that room, one circular room, one circular room, stone, no comforts, no beds, no nothing. And it wasn't on her own, this is the thing. She wasn't there on her own. There was like 30 or 40 women there with her. It was a women's prison. So she's there in an overcrowded room with lots of other women what distinguished her from the others was that she was probably, they say, the most educated woman there. And so she was able to almost be the advocate of the other women. And she wrote numerous letters to the local city officials. She wrote numerous letters to the, you know, the, the, the leaders, the civil leaders, trying to petition for better conditions for the women, trying to petition. And she eventually, 
after writing numerous letters, I mean, when you've got 40 years, she was writing letter after letter, writing letters. She eventually got Bibles, the book of Psalms, for the other women. And she would do some reading classes with them and try and teach them how to read. And that's why they believe as the most educated, the prominent leader amongst the prisoners, they reckon that it was her who wrote these words, resiste, or resist. Just a simple, so to speak, woman from everyday life that wasn't planning to be a theologian, an academic, or, or, or a leader. But she lived a life that impacted the other 30 women in the prison with her. And now when we hear a story today, it impacts me. Like her life wasn't lived, in a sense, in a vacuum. I believe even her, not as well known as the other prominent reformers, she lived a life still that sways the future. Because to me, it gives me encouragement that here's someone that's not well known, and she still stood by the principles which she lived for as she etched those words, resiste, from, as I from 13, 17, 30, from the age of 18 till 1768, she remained in the prison, sorry, at the age of 56, she moved back to the family house, and she only lived for another eight years, like her... her the prime years of her life were spent in prison. Her 20s, her 30s, her 40s. And half of her 50s were spent in prison. Today her house is a museum. It's a testament to her faith and her fortitude and the life that she lived. I can imagine as she was there in that prison, she may have wondered, where is God at this time? And if she had ever known the words of that song that we just read at the beginning, they would have been true then. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows. There's times when God stands in the shadows. We want him to be in the light, but he's in the shadows at that time. But it's encouraging to know that even when he's in the shadow, he's still watching over us. It's not always easy to think that or understand that exactly at the time. And it may be that at those times we have to hang on to that by faith. You know, in the Bible, there's a man called Job. And we hear this many times. And it may not be something easy. And it's something I believe that we all have to pray for. How can we have a faith where Job was able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? How can that become a reality where it's not just a catchphrase, it's not just a cliche, but it's actually something that, that is the way we live or guides our being? You know, Proverbs said, Trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not unto our own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall what? Direct your paths. It was Isaac Newton who said these famous words, If I've seen further than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of who? Giants. You know, we have the privilege today, living in the day and age in which we live, to so to speak stand on the shoulders of giants. Look back, look forward, and we can see the life and the legacy that these men lived. There's another story that I want to share with, or another man I want to share with you. His name was George Wishart. In many ways, he's Scotland's forgotten reformer. Everyone knows about John Wycliffe, not John Wycliffe, sorry, John Knox, and how John Knox stood before bloody not bloody queen, how John Knox stood before Mary, Queen of Scots. And how John Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. We all know about John Knox. Less people know about George Wishart. 
Why? He was martyred only at the age of 33. He only had two years of public ministry in the country of Scotland, and yet in those two years, he caused a huge revival. Biblical preaching, practical ministry. He was a great man. There was one time when there was a, there was a plague in the city of Dundee, and everyone was fleeing the city to get out of the city if they didn't have the, you know, the, 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 the plague. He went into the city to preach the gospel to the people who were sick. Cardinal Beaton from St. Andrews made it his mission when, when he became the cardinal to capture and kill George Wishart. And if you, you kind of read the story, it's fascinating. He literally chased him all over Scotland. He went to Dundee with like 200 soldiers to capture him. And the local townspeople said, leave the man alone. He then went to the city of Ayr to try and capture him, A-Y-R, to try and capture him, and he missed him. He then went to another city, to, I, forget, I think it was at least four or five times, Cardinal Beaton tried to capture him, sometimes with one, two, or three hundred soldiers. Finally, 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 he caught him with 500 soldiers. One man, <laughs> and you've got 500 soldiers soldiers. He caught George Wishart and he took him here to, um, <coughs> excuse me, he took him here to St. Andrews. If you've ever been to Scotland, go to St. Andrews. It's a beautiful city. It's where Prince William met Kate, or Catherine, as you should say. Uh, it's where Prince William met Catherine. They were both studying at university there in St. Andrews. It's a beautiful town. It's the home of golf, the oldest golf course in the world. Um, and it sits right there on the ocean. Lovely town, Really nice, quiet town. It's not like as busy as Edinburgh or anything like that. Anyway, he took him there to St. Andrews. And there in St. Andrews, um, John Knox wanted to follow him. John Knox said, George Wishart, if you're going to prison, I'm coming with you. Probably one of those impetuous types. And George Wishart said some famous words back to John Knox. He said, John Knox, no, 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 you stay here. He said, one is sufficient for sacrifice. One is sufficient for sacrifice. So they took... Um, George Wishart here. And George Wishart, unfortunately, was tried. Um, and he was burned to death outside, um, just literally where the picture's being taken. He was burned to death outside the walls. And on the, on the road is the words GW, um, engraved in kind of the pavement, in tile. GW for George Wishart. People park their cars on top of it today. They have no idea what those words or letters mean. It stands for George Wishart, the man who was the reformer, so to speak, before John Knox. John Knox was his understudy. Um, famously, John Knox would carry a two-handed sword protecting him as he was going around the country. Um, and as I mentioned, at his final capture, he wanted to go with him, but he was told one is sufficient for sacrifice. And when George Wishart died, John Knox made the decision that he would kind of pick up the mantle and carry on the Scottish Reformation that George Wishart had not been able to complete. And so today we know about John Knox, but George Wishart, he came before him. He came before him. And when he died at the age of 33, no doubt dying before his parents, and long before his brothers, sisters, or cousins of his same age, when he died at the young age of 33, I'm sure it passed through his mind. Has my life been worth it? Has my life 
being what it could have been. But he lived a life, I believe, that swayed the future. And as the song says, yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. You know, you may ask the question, why is it that God preserved the life of one reformer, John Knox? I mean, John Knox lived until he was 72 years old. George Wishart died at 33. Why did John Knox get a long life? And why did George Wishart get a short life? I don't know. We really don't know the answer to those questions as to why God let one reformer live to die a natural death and one uh, reformer died a martyr's death being burned outside the gates of the castle and a lonely death. We don't know. God understands for some of these people, it seemed like God was in the very forefront or the light of their life. And for other reformers, it seemed like God was really in the shadows. And yet whether God was in the shadows or God was in the light, God was watching over all of them. And we must understand these stories in the context of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And that we're born here on a battlefield. And God has called us to live lives, and whether our lives live until their natural end like John Knox, or whether our, our lives may be prematurely, in the eyes of others, brought to a close like George Wishart, each life must be lived to the fullest. And for God, and he will see the rest. We understand in Revelation 13, verse 15 to 17, the final events of earth's history, and when you read those texts in the Bible, we understand the Bible says that those who do not have the mark of the beast, they will be commissioned to be killed. Well, firstly, it says they cannot buy or sell. Then it says they will, they will be killed. Like prophetically, we understand what that means for us as Seventh-day Adventists. That if we live the lives that God has called us to live, there will come a time when we'll be persecuted at the end. Like, faithfulness doesn't always mean that God gives us the easy life. But maybe we live a life that sways the future in front of us. I want to close with a short story. From a logbook. And the story, I just want to encourage that wherever we live, we should be faithful in good times and bad times. There's a logbook that you can find at the Girl Guides headquarters in London. You know what the Girl Guides are? It's like the female version of the Boy Scouts. And it's a logbook in London, and inside the logbook there's an interesting phrase, song, where it says, we might have been shipped to Timbuktu. We might have been shipped to Kalamazoo. It's not repatriation nor is it yet starvation, it's simply concentration in Chifu. There was a little song that the girl guides would sing. We might have been shipped to Kimbuktu, we might have been shipped to Kalamazoo, it's not repatriation, nor is it yet starvation, it's concentration in Chifu. Well, I know where Timbuktu is. It's the country of Mali. Kalamazoo is the country of Michigan. Chifu, where's Chifu? I don't feel bad, I had no idea where it was either. It's in China. 
And in China, there was a camp there called the Weishan Concentration Camp that they had in World War II. And why is it interesting? Because there was a school called Chifu School prior to the war. And when they rounded up the foreigners, there was a group that they rounded up from this school. This girl here, Mary Privet, is this one here. She was interviewed and she was talking about this story. She is the great-granddaughter of, um, is it Hudson, Charles Hudson? Hudson Taylor. She's the great-granddaughter of Hudson Taylor, so she had missionary in her blood. Um, he was one of the first missionaries to China, and then his, uh, his grandson became a missionary to China. And while they were there as missionaries in China, the China, you know, the, I think it was the Japanese army, they were, they, were, they were coming into China, and the missionaries were under threat. And the government said, you can leave and go home. We'll get you out of here on the next plane, you know, as they do. And he said, no, I refuse to take the plane home to, um, I believe it was to America. No, England. I refuse to take the plane home to England. He says, we weren't called to be just missionaries in the good times, but in the bad times also. He said, I know the war's coming. I know the Japanese soldiers are coming. And I know full well what that entails, but I was called to be a missionary here, and I will stay in the good times and the bad times. Well, his children, who went to the school in Chifu, they were rounded up and sent to the Weishan concentration camp. And it's fascinating. It's kind of almost like a case study, because they were sent to this concentration camp, but it was... They rounded up, and it's interesting because most of the people that go to concentration camp, they're sent there as kind of like family units, then they're split. This was an interesting one because they were sent there as a girl guide slash boy scout troop. So they're able to kind of socially analyze a group of children outside of their parents with just their teachers there. And it's interesting to read the different logbook entries. One of them says, what's this behind bars? Well, it's Weishan Camp. Well, I guess there's a good deal of fun to be got out of this, just the place to earn some badges. Now, I don't know if you guys are pathfinders or not in your local churches, but imagine going into a concentration camp and your first thought in your mind is, hey, I'm going to earn some badges here in the concentration camp. But the teachers were trying to instill in the kids. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in school or a concentration camp, you still live by the principles that we have taught you as part of your unit. They were told no matter how disgusting the food was, we still want good table manners. It doesn't matter how hungry you are, you're not going to steal. You will still do a good deed every day and you will still help other people out. Those are the girl guide principles. I remember when I was reading the story, I started to think, what about Pathfinders or what about some of the Adventist kids? She said... So you're eating some kind of glop of maybe boiled animal grain, broom corn that the Chinese feed to their animals was what they often fed us. And you're eating it out of a soap dish or a tin can. And then comes Miss Stark behind us, one of our teachers, Mary Taylor. Do not slouch over your food while you're eating. Do not talk while you have food in your mouth. There are not two sets of manners, one manners for the princesses in Buckingham Palace and another set of manners for the Weishan concentration camp. I would kind of draw an analogy from that. There shouldn't be two types of Adventist. One Adventist that goes to GYC in a time of peace and safety, and another Adventist that's living under persecution. 
who we are today in a time of peace and safety and, you know, it's kind of the cool thing to be an Adventist. You've got pathways in town and we're part of this big whole thing. Who we are today should be the same as who we are should the circumstances completely change. When they were marching to the concentration camp, they were singing. The teachers got them to sing the first verse of Psalms 46. God is our refuge, our refuge and strength. We will not be afraid. And as she was telling the story, she says, it does something to you. Singing songs when you're going through a time into a concentration camp. And she says, the te- she says we were kids. We didn't know what was going on, really. She just knew what was happening. The teachers had heard about the rape of Nanking. The teachers had heard of all these things. But they still kind of maintained and preserved the childhood of the children and got them to live a life in the camp that they would have lived outside the camp. It was the same person. Even though God appeared to be in the shadows, they still, in a sense, kept their principles while they were there. And today, I'll just read the last verse again as we close. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. Though her, the cause of truth, though her portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong, Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. I pray that for us today, whatever experience we may be going through, whether it's a shadow experience or whether it's a light experience, let us remember that God is watching over his own, whether we can see him or whether we can't. And may we live a life that sways the future for other people. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to live for you today. And Lord, if for whatever reason that we do not understand, it was part of our duty to die for you as well. Lord, I pray that we would do so in the hope of the resurrection And do so in the knowledge and the faith that you watch over your children. Lord, may we live lives today, even though it's a luxury, ease, and peace, and safety. But may who we are today be who we are should the circumstances of life change. If we found ourselves in a stone-cold, round prison room for 38 years, that we would still be faithful to you. Bless us, Lord, as individuals, bless our families, and may we live lives that sway the future, that leave a legacy for others. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Ah, one, one thing before we go, if any of you have not, um, how many of you got? If any of you are interested, we, at, we have a booth for Lineage, if you've, which is the, uh, the video series that we worked on this year. If any of you are interested, we do have some flyers at the booth, and these flyers are not for, so much for us to give you to tell you what Lineage is about, because you probably know what it's about. Um, these flyers are for you to come to the booth and take. It's designed to be kind of like an outreach flyer that you could share with friends at work or family members or people that, you know, may not know or may not be Christian, 
and you could share this with them. They could go online and check what it is out. So if you're interested, um, I've got one or two here, not many though, but if you want to come by the booth and grab a handful or you know, grab 10 or 20 or 30 and take them with you and use them to share, um, you can. Some of you can come and get these ones as well. And also, if you are interested, I know the videos are online for free, so it's not trying to scam you, but I know that some of you have grandmas or uncles and aunties that don't know what YouTube is or don't know what the internet is, so we've put the um, episodes all on DVD. And sometimes in your churches, you don't have internet connection to watch, da, da, da. So the episodes are all on DVD. If you're interested in buying a DVD or a couple or a, a set of, you know, a, a stack of DVDs, then come by the booth. We do have the DVDs available that you could use in your churches or use them as gifts to give away um, as an outreach resource. We do have them there. So you can drop by the booth today. I think they're open at four o'clock and then tomorrow afternoon as well. I mean, sorry, evening after Sabbath. Um, you could come by and get them as well. Thank you and God bless. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.